All right, anniversary Sunday. You know, as, as I was looking into the history a little bit, and it's, it's, it's great to, to remind ourselves, having a, having a church picnic, we're celebrating what others did for us in our church family from a long time ago that we benefit from. And it, it begs the question, doesn't it, as we turn from looking backwards and we then look forward, what are we going to do with this church heritage? We have been given something. We have been given the strength of a church family that has endured a long time. And what are we going to do now with what we've been given? I was, I was realizing that, that uh, our church, I used to think about, okay, families moved here. Pioneers did that. They came out, out, out west because the land was better. And it wasn't in the East. And so here they were, and they said, well, since we're here, we're going to need things like churches and schools. Actually, the Clark family, their extended families, they came here with the express purpose, we're going to plant a church. They did it first in Oregon, and then as Oregon got a little crowded, they moved across the river because now, the time when they moved, settling had just reopened because of some treaties with Britain. Settling had just reopened for Americas north for, for Americans north of the fort. And these, this family came, their extended families, they came here and, and made homesteads here because they said people are going to come here and they're going to need a church. And we need to be that church for them when they come. And so they came expressly for the purpose of planting a church and we are benefiting from that still. So that's what they did with what they've been given. There was a heritage in their family of church planning that went back a few generations prior to that. They, they showed us what they were going to do with what they were given. The question that sets before us this morning, as we celebrate a past, as we celebrate an anniversary, the question hangs out there, what are we going to do with what we've been given? Now, easing into that, we're going to start in the book of Joshua. We're going to start, some people thought, oh, we're afraid I brought, I brought the bench up with me this morning because I actually have about seven chapters in Joshua we're going to go through this morning. You're thinking, well, it's a good thing we've got a picnic lunch then. because No, we're going to survey. Now, these seven chapters in Joshua, these are the apportioning of the inheritances to each of the tribes. So we'll go from chapter 13 to 18, actually into chapter 19 of Joshua. But when we do that, we're not going to go verse by verse and count all the cities and Judah got this part and Ephraim got these cities and these lands and the border went from here to here to here. That's all very interesting and it needed to be recorded. Israel could look back and see very specifically these are the portions that each one of us were given. But we're going to look at a couple of the why were they given these portions. Why was it divided down instead of it all being for all of Israel? Why was it portioned at all into smaller pieces for family, clans, groupings, or tribes? Why was that done, first of all? And what did they do with what they were given? First of all, why was this done? Okay, chapter 13 and verse 1. We'll start there because that's the beginning. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And so the Lord said to him, because sometimes the Lord needs to tell it to you just the way it is. He says, Joshua, you are old and advanced in years. That makes me want to, especially on a birthday, another birthday, kind of makes me want to avoid prayer time, right? Is the Lord just going to remind me, Bob, you are old and advanced in years. And yet there still remains a lot to do, he says, and there remains yet very much land to possess. Now Joshua's about 85 years old at this time. They have been in the land probably about seven years at this time. Seven years have gone by and yet there remains very much of the land to still possess. There's a lot of Canaanites still, still there and they shouldn't be. 
This this was given to them. This is your inheritance. This is your new land. Move into it. And yet, there's still much for them to move into. There's much ground yet to be gained. And so the Lord says, this is what we're going to do. We're going to divide up now the, the rest of chapter 13. The, on the east side of the river, two and a half of the family groups, the tribes, the clans, have their portions allotted to them already. So now the remainder of Israel needs to take responsibility for individual sections of the land west of Jordan. You see, that's the point here. They are not just, okay, what's mine, what's yours? They are each given individual responsibilities for areas that they are going to step into and to possess. I always looked at it the other way around, that God did this because each of them was supposed to have some. And he does that all the way down to family lines. But it's more like Nehemiah. One of the guys in my morning Bible study on Mondays pointed this out. That it's kind of like Nehemiah in building the wall. That he said, that, that, that Nehemiah said, each person is going to build the wall in front of where their house is. Each of us has a responsibility to do something, to take the next steps, to possess that which God has given us to live in and to live out. So that's why the divisions are happening. Okay, Transjordan, that's chapter 13. Now we get to 14. We're about to go into the division of the inheritances for the peoples on the west side. But before we do that, we're introduced to a man named Caleb. Caleb was Joshua's buddy. In fact, it's Caleb's age that reminds us of how old Joshua must be as well, even though he is old and advanced in years. So, 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 so Caleb, is, as old as he is, he was the other guy with Joshua when they first went and spied out the land 38 years earlier plus, well, it's about 45 years earlier now. 45 years earlier, and they said, yeah, there are giants in the land, but God is with us. God is giving us this land. We have got to take it. That was Caleb along with Joshua. And Caleb now says, he said, you remember that place? You remember that hill we were most afraid of because of the giants? He says, you give me that spot. I'll take that plot. That's what I'll possess. And we will drive them out because God is with us. That's Joshua chapter 14. Caleb sets the way, shows the way, gives an example for us. Now there's an example here on the map of of the different inheritances that each one of them are going to get. There's the map. And so you can see the east side, that's already been apportioned. That's chapter 13, lines those out. Now from chapter 15 forward, we're going to get the divisions for these others. We'll start with Judah. We'll go to Ephraim and Manasseh. And those are the three biggest chunks in the west. After we've, de- after we've dealt with those, we'll go to the other seven tribes. Okay, we get to chapter 15, and it's Judah. So Judah is given their portion. Again, we're not going to go. The border goes this way and that way and down to here and up to here. All these cities. We're not going to do that. We're going to get to the end because there's a reoccurring sort of chorus that keeps coming up. And it's like songs. The chorus seems to reinforce a main point. So it does here. But with all of this that they're given, verse 63 of chapter 15, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem even to this day. And so we go to the next chapter, chapter 16. And there, and there is the portion that is given to Ephraim. Ephraim's given their portion. It's laid out for them. Verse 10, however, 
they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. So the Canaanites had lived in the midst of Ephraim to this day. They're given this, these portions because there's still land to possess. And they're supposed to go in and possess it. They're supposed to, ex- carrying out God's judgment, drive out the Canaanite peoples that they will not be influenced by them or oppressed by them. And they're supposed to take over this inheritance that God has given them. What are we going to do with what we've been given? They're supposed to live in it. And take it, receive it, and fulfill it to the fullest. And yet, there are these pockets still, sometimes very large pockets of resistance. You see, the enemy does not want to give up that which he has owned, that which he has possessed. And uh, this whole land, the reason God is expelling the Canaanites and has given it over to Israel is he is expelling those who have given themselves and this land over to a demonic, idolatrous worship that even endured the offering of their own children into, into idols, demonic idols to be burned alive. It was horrible, the things that were going on here in ungodly rebellion against the one true and living God. And yet those spiritual enemies are going to work through people because they do not want to give up the dominion that they have exercised up till now. Okay, we move to chapter 17. Chapter 17 is Manasseh's big chunk. This is going to be the inheritance of Manasseh, and it's all laid out there. We get to about verse 12. Yet... The people of Manasseh could not take possession of those cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. Now, the people of Israel were strong. When they were strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not utterly drive them out. And so when the Canaanites were strong, as you read in the book of Judges, they would also then put the Israelites to forced labor. They would oppress them back under spiritual bondage. Okay, so, so the people of Manasseh, they're in a tough spot here. They say, hey, our Canaanites are stronger than some of the others, and they're, they're not really happy about this. They say, hey, Joshua, couldn't we have, like, some more? Couldn't you make our peace a little bit bigger? Because, you know, there's these Canaanites in the land, and down here in the valleys and in this area around Beth Shean, you know, they've got iron chariots, and it really makes it really hard for us to get ahead. So maybe you could expand our boundaries, give us a little more. Well, let's take a look. There's a map again. I want to show you that map one more time. See Manasseh? Manasseh is on your, let's see, on your left-hand side. It's that pinkish blob right in the middle. That's a big chunk. Not only that, but look, you've got all the way down to the Jordan Valley. You control, actually, the, the southern access from below the Sea of Galilee into the uh, what's called the Jezreel Valley on the way to the coast, you've got a big section of coastline that goes almost all the way down towards Joppa. You've got, you've got beaches, you've got coastal plain, you've got beautiful rolling foothills and valleys, and you've even got a section of the Jezreel Valley. Now, that area of Beth Shane, which they mentioned, the Canaanites there, they have chariots. They're there because it's important. Here's a picture of Beth Shane. Beth Shane has more layers of different ruins of different, um, how should I say this, different empires that have owned that real estate over the years than almost any place else in Israel. It's fascinating the layers that you can go down to. When we went there, we actually saw, in fact, the very top left-hand corner, those, that's the base, the foundation of the Egyptian governor's palace. 
So the Egyptian governor used to live there at one time. There are Canaanite houses and dwellings and palaces and temples. There is the, the largest ruins now are down below the, uh, the larger tell behind it. But these larger ruins down below, it was a huge Roman city. It was one of the ten Roman cities, the Decapolis. And the whole purpose there was to have these wonderful cities in key places. And they showed off Roman culture to these backwoods Israelites, trying to tell them, come over to our city. We've got bathhouses. We've got running water. We've got indoor toilets. All right? And so this was, this was a show-off city. This was an important city because it was all through history because it was in a key place. But Manasseh says, oh, it's too hard there. Could you give us some place easier to take? A Another part of their inheritance is the Jezreel Valley. That's a picture from, from Mount Carmel looking over the Jezreel Valley. It's a beautiful valley. It's some of the most fertile land in Israel. Not only that, it's key because if anything is going to come from anywhere in the east, think Assyria, Syria, Babylon, Persia, anything from the east, if it's going to get to the Mediterranean Sea so that it can go to the west, it's going to go through the Jezreel Valley. And Manasseh owns half of the Jezreel Valley. That's their territory. But there's Canaanites there, and they have iron chariots. Of course they don't want to give that up because this is some of the best real estate on the planet in that day. You say, well, it's not, it doesn't look like Hawaii. But in that day, in an agricultural economy, an agricultural people, this was heaven on earth. This was their promised land. This is the land that flows with milk and honey. But there's Canaanites who don't want to give it up. Now, easily, we kind of have a similar thing. We look at our own circumstances. We look at the opposition. We look at the trouble that we get, and we think, God, couldn't you give us an easier way? Couldn't you give us a different place? Couldn't you give us a spot where we could go that would be easier to handle and manage than the opposition, the trouble we're facing here? Maybe the reason we're facing trouble here is like Job got Satan's notice because of how effective he was at demonstrating God's righteousness and his grace and mercy in the midst of his corner of the world. And maybe that's why the Canaanites are so opposing Manasseh here because of the potential of this beautiful place that God has given them where they're going to be at the crossroads of civilizations and there they could live for God. Well, the answer that Joshua gives gives the people of Manasseh, next slide, is actually verse 18. I labeled it wrong. The hill country will be yours. For though it is forest, you can clear it and possess it in its farthest borders. You will drive out the Canaanites, even though they have chariots of iron and even though they are strong. You will drive them out because God is with you. So don't shirk from, don't draw back from that which God has set before you. This is your corner. What are you, Manasseh, going to do with what you've been given? And so then we carry on. We get into chapter 18. Now we've, we've taken care of the big chunks. And now in chapter 18 and 19, what's left is there's still seven smaller tribes left. Seven smaller family clams. Where are they going to live? And so Joshua says, and here's again the reason why this is being done. The reason it's being done. Let me see. So Joshua says to the people in verse 3 of chapter 18, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord your God, the God of your fathers, has given you. So again, the reason it's going to be divided, that's set up front. The reason it's going to be divided is they've been slow to take over. They've been slow to live in. They've been slow to press on in living in this promise that God has given them. How long are you going to be not 
living in the promise God gave you. And so he says, what are we going to do? You send out teams, you're going to survey all the land, and you're going to divide it into seven equal fair portions, and then God's going to decide which of you get what. It's kind of like if you had one big candy bar and you have seven kids, right? What do you do? Well, you have one of the kids divided into seven pieces, and you let the other six choose first, right? Those are going to be the seven most equal pieces you ever saw in a candy bar, because ones are going to choose, and, or, or, or somebody's going to divide it, and then somebody else is going to do the choosing. So they're going to survey very different land, north and south and all over here, and then God is going to choose by lot which of them get what. And then it's all portioned out, and that happens in 18 and 19. And then at the end of chapter 19, we have this little bit about the people of Dan. It says in verse 47, when the territory of the people of land of Dan, once it had been apportioned to them, the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them. And so the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with a sword, they took possession of it and settled there. They settled somewhere else. They made another plan because they failed to live in the possession that God had given them. And again, their possession was on the coast and then up into the foothills just south of Manasseh. Beautiful coastland, and the Canaanites didn't want to give it up. And they ended up pushing Dan out of it instead. Denied them their inheritance. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what our enemy would do to us. We have been given, called into a rich spiritual life in Christ to live out in this flesh, and yet there will be spiritual opposition. The enemy doesn't want to give up the dominion he once had over you in your life. The enemy would still want to have you walk according to his ways, according to the course of this world, instead of living new and walking new in Christ. He's not going to easily give up that territory in your heart that he once held. There will be opposition. Your circumstances, your situation, your portion of where you're going to live that life of Christ might look different than the person sitting next to you. And that is not the point. It's what will we do with what we've been given? What will I do with what I've been given? How will I live out this life of Christ in this corner of life where God has set me? How will I grow? How will I flourish? How will I bring God glory where I've been planted? Now, just as these chapters in Joshua are very clear, very specific about whose inheritance is where and what that inheritance looks like, so also is the New Testament clear about our inheritance in Christ. In fact, the place that makes that the clearest is the last book we were just looking at together, the book of Ephesians. Ephesians, as I said before, is compared to Joshua because Joshua is the people of Israel living into their new life in the Old Testament. Ephesians is a people in Christ living in their new life, their new inheritance that we have received in Christ. And so even as Yahshua leads them in in the Old Testament, Jesus, Yahshua, leads us into this new life in the New Testament and is delineated. It's specifically described, perhaps clearer than any of the other New Testament books, especially in the book of Ephesians. So let's turn over there now. Not only have we already done seven chapters in Joshua, we're going to do three more in Ephesians, just for good measure, in the last 10, 15 minutes we have. Ephesians chapter... Oh, let's do the whole book. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 1, shall we? 
Ephesians chapter 1 introduces to this inheritance in verse 14 where we're told that we have all received the down payment of it. The down payment, the earnest of our inheritance has already been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the full possession of it. So the Holy Spirit is the means, the power of God securing for us his promise and the means by which we can live into it. That's spelled out in verse 19 as well. Verse 19 of chapter 1, it's, it's his power toward us in Christ. That's our means. Israel had God with them. We have the spirit of the living God within us to open up this inheritance that we have been given. And so in chapter 2, in verse 2, we once walked according to this world. We once walked according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the children of disobedience. But we were dead in sin, but now we've been made alive in Christ. And having been saved by grace through faith, we are now God's workmanship. God is working. God is finishing what he started. We are his workmanship unto Good works which God has set before us that we are to walk in. Verse 10 of chapter 2. Now the reason we walk in those good works that God has set before us, our portion, our inheritance that he's given us to live in, that, that the purpose of that is that we might show Christ's power working in us to the spiritual rulers and authorities of darkness in the heavenlies. That to those spiritual powers of darkness, those rulers and authorities, we would show the life and the power of Christ in our own lives in their face. They cannot stand against us. So then on that basis, on the basis according to Christ's power working in us, chapter 3, verse 20, verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, on that basis, Paul says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you, I exhort you, I challenge you, I plead with you, to walk worthy of this glorious calling with which you have been called. You have been given a new life. What are you going to do with what you've been given? Just as Israel was given the opportunity to take next steps into living in the new land that God had given them, God calls us to take next steps in living in this new life that he has given us. Now in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, he delineates, he describes, he unpacks that inheritance very specifically, and you'll be relieved to know, because the, the uh, food is probably already being set out, you'll be relieved to know that we're not going to work all the way through those three chapters this morning. But I put it on your insert notes. On the back, I summarize the exhortations. Now, for, there's something that's in chapter 4, 5, and 6 for you that I missed. So you're going to want to go back and read Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6 yourself. Ah, Let's start at the beginning of the book. Get the foundation of chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then look for specifically as you read 4, 5, and 6. Look for God. What are my steps? What are the next steps that I'm going to take? Let me, let me suggest just a couple. Let's begin to work down the list of some of those things that I, that I summarize. Verse 17 of chapter 4. We no longer walk as the nations. Hey, that's kind of like... Israel and the Canaanites. Don't live like them. Live new. Live different. Live a life of worship to your God. That's our calling as well. We no longer walk as the nations, everybody else in the world, but we are to live new. A land formerly given to horrendous demonic bondage is now, now that land, our life has been set free to live in worship to the true and living God. So in verse 22 of chapter 4, put off the old self, 
corrupted with deceitful desires. They, they, they seem like they will satisfy, but they will not. And put on the new man in the image of Christ, in the likeness of Christ, and being good, begin living in this new life that God has made for us to live in. Verse 25, put off falsehood and speak truth. Verse 26, be angry without sinning. You'll be angry, but not with sin, not angry over selfish things, not angry about what somebody does to me, but there are things within the world that are broken and aren't right and I would be angry about, but I'll not let the sun go down to my anger. I'll not let that anger continue and fester. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but labor, working with his hands in order to give to those in need. Let's pause here. Not that I think you have a problem with stealing, okay? But because this is a verse that really, really shows what I'm talking about when I say taking next steps into the life God has given us. Because it's one step, and then it's another, and then it's another, and this verse shows that. Let the thief who stole steal no longer, step number one. But let him labor with his own hands, doing work for himself to provide for his needs, step two, in order that he might be able to give to others in time of need, step three. You see, there was a guy, he stole. He didn't steal a lot, but he stole things. He'd take what he could when it was there to be taken because, uh, you know, that was something he wouldn't have to buy. He could get a little bit more ahead that way. It wasn't that he didn't have any money to buy things with, but by stealing something, then it was just a little extra. Bettering his position, feathering his nest, so to speak. But, you know, as as time goes by and God grabbed hold of his life, Wonderfully saved. This, this one who used to steal doesn't steal anymore. Is that a good thing? Is that life change? Is that transformation? Is that the work of God in the life of a broken, sinful human being like you and I? Yeah, it is. The one who steals, steals no longer. And yet, yet, yet also not stealing, now he works. He, he gives himself to the work of his hands and what's before him. It's a good work. It's a, it's, a, it's a just work. He can feel good about it at the end of the day. And he earns things. And he can take care. He can provide for himself. He could buy stuff that he couldn't have before. And, well, he can give a little bit here and there maybe too. But, you know, I do need to look after myself. I've got responsibilities. And there's things that I want, you know. There's, there's, there's clothes. And, you know, I like to, like to buy a nicer car. I like to have a little bit bigger place. And, you know, maybe someday when things are a little better off, I would have some extra. And out of that, I could give more than I, I can now. He's working with his own hands. Not relying on others. Providing for himself and even for his family. That's a good thing. That's, again, God's work moving in the life of a believer, taking next steps, doesn't steal anymore, doesn't drain others any longer, but now is providing for himself and for his own. That's a good thing, too. And yet the next step, the next step is the mind of Christ, is a mind of sacrifice. It's not, a, it, it's, it's not one that just considers one's own needs, but it considers giving away for the sake of others. It's not what I need, and now I've got what I need, and now I've got some extra, I could give that away. It's I will do without what I could rightfully have for myself in order that I give to somebody else because they're important, and their need I make more important than my wants. Maybe I will make their need more important than my need. And now the life of Christ begins to live out in this individual life. Let him who stole steal no more. But rather let him work, laboring with his own hands, so that he might have 
something to give to others in time of need. That his own work isn't merely for himself or herself, but now that work and what's gained out of it is to give away for the sake of others. And now you see Christ increasingly shown in the life of this one. You see, it's, it's not merely a step. It's not merely not doing what you're not supposed to do anymore because now we're a Christian. And unfortunately, that's how we've miserably defined the Christian life at times. But instead, it's what does Christ look like in this life of mine? And it's not only not doing what I shouldn't do anymore, but it's stepping into the life of Jesus of giving myself away for the sake of others. Let him who stole steal no more, but rather let him work with his hands that he might have something to give to those in need. Going on, verse 29, let no unwholesome word, but rather words that build up and give grace come out of your mouths. Give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, put away all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, fighting, slander, talking evil of others, but be kind-hearted, forgiving as God in Christ has forgiven us. I talked... I was picking on a guy just a minute ago, so let's say there's a woman. Maybe it's a young lady. Maybe it's not such a young lady, but she has a harsh tongue. And she's quick to cut others down. You know, it's a weird thing, but by cutting others down, she actually gathers people around herself. I don't know why that is. Maybe they feel better about themselves by being among the uncriticized. Maybe they, they, they join in the ridicule of others to somehow feel better about themselves. Maybe if the gossip is flowing, it's better to be talking about others than being the one talked about. So you better choose which side you're going to be on. But being a gossip gets ugly. And she knows it. Really shouldn't be doing this. And so you know, she doesn't participate anymore. She used to be a gossip, but she doesn't participate more. In fact, when others that she's around, when she tries to tell those others, you know, let's not worry about them, those people that we're talking about. Let's not worry about them. Let's not talk about them. She'd rather just leave those others alone. That seems the right thing to do. That seems a better way to be, not be talking about them at all. But it's still missing something. Jesus didn't just leave us alone. Jesus came to the outcast. He came to those non-invited. He came to, in Ephesians 2 words, to those who were afar off, and he brought them near. He came to those who were looked down on. He speaks words of grace. The God who made you loves you. You are way more precious to God than you realize. In fact, God so loved you that he gave his own son in your place in order to redeem you, buy you back to himself because he wants, he desires, he longs for a sweet relationship with you and to walk with you again in the cool of the garden. Those are the words that Jesus brought to those who were outside. It's a partial victory to stop the gossip or the slander. It's the next step. It's the new ground gain. It's, to t- is, 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 it's taking over more of Satan's former territory to replace the slander or the harsh words with words of grace, with words of tender kindness, with words of encouragement, words that will build people up and strengthen them instead. But what if they hurt me? What if they wronged me? As a Christian, I need to forgive that, right? I need to, I need to not hold that against them anymore. Forgiveness is, I, I have a legitimate charge against you, or you have a legitimate charge against me, and yet you release me of that charge. You will no longer hold that offense against me. That's forgiveness. 
We've forgotten perhaps how to do that. Certainly in, as, in a society as a whole. You know, any street rioter can demand justice. Justice is easily, easy to demand. I have been wronged and you somehow have to make that right. Forgiveness comes in the midst of that and says, I was wronged and I will let it go. I will release you of the charge that I rightfully have against you. That's the next steps in the Christian life. Maybe that's why we're having so much trouble now as a society with offenses and past injustice. We don't know what to do with it because we don't know how to acknowledge this is a legitimate wrong that I can just as legitimately let go and not hold against you any longer. Instead, I can, I can pray for those who persecuted me. I can welcome with forgiveness's embrace those who I would have wanted to push away and punish. That's what forgiveness looks like. And as perhaps as Christianity's influence within our society wanes, our society is left with no answer to how should we respond. What we do with statues is not the question. The point is instead, the point is rather... Look at where we are as a society if we are not able to forgive and to embrace and to receive and to forgive others as God in Christ has forgiven. So you see, to not slander, to not talk evil of others, that's, that's step one. Being kind instead is step number two. Forgiving the one who actually has wronged me is going even further. And that's taking a hilltop. That's taking high country that the enemy has no answer for. Because Jesus' victory over him is based on Jesus taking the wrong upon himself, dying in our place that he might forgive us and that we would then be restored. Not left alone. Not merely not punished, but restored into right relationship with God as a result. Look what God has done. So the list goes on, and you can, you can go further into chapter 5. You'll, you'll run into very quickly to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice for sin. We're not merely to be well-behaved. We're not merely to do what's morally right. We are to be a fragrance and aroma of Christ, giving of ourselves for others in the midst of this world. No sexual sin or immorality or covetousness. You know, the desiring of somebody else and the sexual immorality that comes out of that looking at and desiring somebody else, that's coveting, that's desiring what, what is for somebody else, for myself, rather than being thankful for the blessings that I have been given. Because I'm not satisfied and I'm not thankful for and I'm not realizing and I'm not stepping into the, the fullness of this life that God has given me. Instead, then, I... I look longingly at somebody else's land, at somebody else's inheritance or somebody else's blessing, or I want to use somebody else for my own pleasure because I'm not fulfilled. What Israel needed to do is get out of their tents and get into the land and live in and live out what God had given them. And what you and I need to do, men, is not find ways to entertain ourselves or try to just say no to it. We need to rather throw ourselves into what it is that God has given us in this life to live in. We cannot win a spiritual war from the couch. It will not work. God has set before us victory to no longer, in the, again, in words in Ephesians that sound a lot like Words in Joshua, 
Don't participate in the sin with the sons of disobedience. For you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Taking no part in the unfull works of darkness, like in Canaan, but instead expose them or show them. Shine light on them by being different. And if you are different, if you are different in Christ's life, self-sacrificial ways, if you are different in this life, if taking the next step is a step of different, you're going to take some shots. You're going to be the one that's now slandered. You're going to be the one that's gossiped about. But maybe they will be talking about something of Jesus in you. And now we've got the enemy somehow a little talking about Jesus. Let's press into the land. Let's step into this new life, this inheritance that God has given us. Last example I want to give you. The story is an illustration of why I don't like state lotteries. Somebody just won the Powerball lottery. It was like 730 or 750 million dollars, something like that. A single ticket won. Can you imagine? And she did not get 750 million dollars. She got maybe about $320, $330 million. First problem, when the government gives you money, they still keep most of it, right? It's, it's, and that's not the only deceit that's in the lottery. Don't get me started. I, I, maybe I'm just bitter because I didn't win. <laughs> Somebody told me you have to buy a ticket to win. I figured if God wants me to win, he's going to do it without a ticket. So I'll know it was from him. But... Now this woman has a problem. What is she going to do with what she's been given? What if I did win the lottery? What if I got the whole 700? Maybe I only got 300 and some. What if I had $300 million and now I have this problem with the last 20 or 30 years of my life? Because face it, that's all I got left. And in that last 20 or 30 years of my life, I've got to figure out what am I going to do with what I've been given? And hopefully I would make wise godly choices. Hopefully I would make decisions and I would invest that money and I'd, I'd place it here and I'd, 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 I'd aim it there in ways that are going to make a longer difference for the kingdom of God in this world than my existence is going to continue here. That would long outlast me in the same way. Hopefully I would make wise choices with what I've been given that my influence would continue for the cause of Christ and for his likeness to be known by others in ways that will go beyond me in the same way that a group of pioneers who didn't have much except some logs to build a church and a school that 154 years later, you and I still benefit from the worshipful community in Christ that was created then because they knew what they were going to do with what they've been given. And now, 154 later years later is to you and I. And we didn't win the lottery. Anybody here win the lottery? Like to know. It'll help with the budget. No. But what are we going to do? We have been given much more. We have been given all riches and spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. What, brothers and sisters, are we going to do with what we've been given? Amen? I feel like it's time to take the offering now, right? Let me give that question one more time. What are you going to do with what we've been given? But we are not talking dollars and cents here merely, are we? We are talking about, Lord, in my life, in my life, help me. Where will I take the next step into your new life 
in my life for the sake of the people around me and for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for what you've given to us. Thank you for the rich inheritance that you have given us in Christ. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. That the kingdom of heaven is for such as us. You have made us a kingdom of, of, of priests unto God. You have given us a standing. You have given us a home. You've made us your own children. We who far off have been brought near. Lord, to me, that's the most precious of all. Father... There is much in your word that describes that inheritance and how we live in it. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for us together that today, in this week, you would show us with tender hearts. We'd go over that list again, and you you would speak to us by your spirit. Where's the next step that we would take into this rich new life you've given us? In Jesus' name.